Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, the Orthodox Jew who impressed Bill Gates. That's my guest today, Kivi Bernhard, the son of a distinguished South African rabbi. Kivi Bernhard is a successful businessman, a judo medalist, the author of Leopardology, The Hunt for Profit in a Global Economy, and a popular lecturer who has spoken to audiences from, quote, the Bahamas to Bangkok, end quote. He was actually the opening speaker and MC of the Orthodox fundraiser held for President Trump in 2019, which featured, in addition to Trump, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson and Rabbi Israel Reisman of Torah Vadas. Kivi, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Truly a pleasure to be here. Honor is all mine. Some people in the audience may have seen the YouTube video about your Bill Gates encounter, but for those who aren't familiar with it, what exactly happened? How did you get the attention of Microsoft's billionaire former CEO? There are a lot of versions of the story, many of which are entirely, absolutely inaccurate. (laughs) Um, Basically, what happened was I was represented at that point in time by several corporate speaking bureaus, one of which had a significant client by the name of Microsoft, this goes back to 2008, 2009, and they were having a major global leadership management event at which Bill Gates was due to attend. And they had asked me to open the keynote, and I agreed to it excitedly, but I hadn't actually checked the calendar to see that it was a Shabbos. And I agreed to it hastily, only then to, with my tail between my legs, come crawling back and say, hey guys, I can't help you. It's the Sabbath, and I'm out. And that's kind of where things got really interesting. I got contacted by a senior vice president at Microsoft who threw a checkbook at me that was open. I said, help yourself to anything. You know, just be there and make it happen. I said, I can't. It's the Holy Sabbath. <laughs> they landed up changing the date of the event from the Saturday to the Sunday. I did the event. Bill Gates did not attend. He wasn't able to. Uh, many, many months later, I had an interaction with this guy, this senior vice president, who I kept up with, by the way, and we actually built a nice rapport, mentioned to me that he was on a plane with Bill Gates and some other executives, and we were discussing this event. He inter alia mentioned, like, hey, you know, what happened there? How come you had to move it from the Saturday to the Sunday? He said, hey, this is the craziest thing. There's this guy who was speaking Sabbath observant. We threw money at him, but nothing budged him. And Bill Gates had purported to have commented, I wonder what it must feel like to have something money can't buy. One thing I don't understand is, even if you're a phenomenal speaker, why were you so important they would throw money at you? There are other great speakers out there. You're not the only one in the world who's a great speaker. Right. So I'm not so important. Um, They wanted lipidology, which was my package. Um, Lipidology explores the hunt of the most successful feline predator on earth, the African leopard, and it parlays its incredible success rate from the bush to the boardroom. We extract lessons of critical execution, essentially operational management from this. And it happened to have achieved nothing to do with me whatsoever, but because Hashem decided that's what should happen with it, it achieved some notoriety and success in the uh, ABC suites of the corporate business world. Could you give one example of a lesson we could take from a leopard? 
ironically, business now has become more about relationship than ever before. And that's counterintuitively here in a WhatsApp, texting, Instagram, email world that we live in. It is so saturated. It has so washed itself out of its own energy that the ability to connect with someone as a human being one-on-one has more value than it actually ever has had before. So one of the fundamental pillars, there's six pillars of what I call positive predatory thinking that are instinctive to the leopard, that they take with them on the hunt just by virtue of how they operate. And pillar number two is this total comfortability with self. Leopard use their camouflage, not sometimes, not when it's applicable, not on the occasion, but consistently and absolutely every single time they hunt. Because literally who they are, being comfortable in their skin, right, using the tooling and the apparatus that they've been given is a fundamental aspect of their core proficiency. They don't just acknowledge it. They rely on it. They trust it implicitly. And this is a very key kind of component. You really need to take inventory of who you are as a human being and what your skill set is, what your skill set is not, what your application is, what it's not, where your comfortability is, where it is not. You have to identify it. Then you have to own it with absolute implicit trust and never leave home without it. Leopard use their camouflage to absolute precision, excellence beyond. Leopard come within six to eight feet of their prey, their client, before they terminally close it for all-time profit share market acquisition. You know, the lion, they're their biggest competitors, charge within 30 to 60 feet out because they don't have the cover. And by the way, lion hunts are successful 54 to 56% of the time. Leopard have a close rate of client retention 76% of the time. Think about that. It's phenomenal. That means that three out of four calls that you make, three out of four client contacts that you pursue, you close for long-term client retention. How does this happen? It's phenomenal. Interesting. One of the fundamental principles out of the six is this total comfortability of self using all the apparatus and the tooling that you have and deploying it in the marketplace, identifying it, trusting it implicitly and using it. Interesting. Years ago, I mean, I actually know you for those people in the audience who don't know, probably all of them. I know you originally from high school. I was in high school in Pittsburgh 25 years ago, and you were a member of the community there. And we used to have Shabbatones once a year, and they always had a featured speaker, and you were the featured speaker at, at two of the Shabbatones. I don't remember everything you said. I remember two or three things. Number one, I remember you were very interesting. Number two, you had a piece of advice based on your judo background, which I'll get to hopefully later. But the third thing, either you said this at the Shabbaton or maybe I heard you at a later occasion, where you had a whole story, I think, with your yarmulke and making a very special business deal because the yarmulke was on your head versus the yarmulke not being on your head. I was wondering if you could share that with the audience because I think it relates to what you just said now. So when I came over from South Africa and I was building my diamond business, I was in the very high-end sort of a gem collection space. And it was an extremely, extremely difficult thing to arrive in the United States from South Africa and kind of acquire market share and develop literally client by client by client. I sold their business, thank God, in 2016 and have 
really wanted to go to Israel, smoke good cigars, learn Hasidus all day, and uh, sit on my, my peset and drink cafe afuch. But uh, through the grace of God, my, myself and a couple of partners climbed into a very uh, involved petrochemical technology that we acquired. And that's really what I'm busy with today. But at that time, when I was building my business, I came to the United States in 1997. And very, very early on, um, when I was living in Pittsburgh, I lived there for three years. There was a client out in... Uh, <laughs> he operated out of Youngstown, Ohio. But he lived and he had a business administration sort of office about 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he was a massive, massive player, this guy. Ted Young was his name. Young's Jewelers. And he had a grip, this guy, on all of the old Carnegie Mellon, Andrew Carnegie money, the generational money in the Valley, the whole Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh Valley. And... Uh, He'd been serving families for generations and very high and stuff. And I needed to get in with this guy because he sold the type of material that I had to sell. And I just could not gain access. And I tried not once, not twice, 10, 15, 20, 30 times. I would phone, I would send out, I would ping him. This is pre-emails. This is pre-all technology access. I must have made 30 trips out to him to just knock on the door, introduce myself, you know, connect with him. I just, I literally could not get on the front door. I mean, just wouldn't give me access. And one freezing cold Tuesday morning, I remember, I'm standing there by the door and I, I ping him and he sees me in the camera and for some unknown reason, inexplicable to me today, he buzzes me in. Actually, it was his son who buzzed me in. And it was a long, long sort of corridor down to his very plush palatial office. And, you know, I walked down there and he sees me. He comes to the, to the sort of the front. He says, what do you want? And I said, Ted, I tell you what I've come here to do. I haven't come here to sell you merchandise. I haven't come here to sell you any product whatsoever. I came here from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to share with you one piece of information. I'm an Orthodox Jew. This, by the way, was in 1998 that this happened. I'm an Orthodox Jew, and you see that from the yarmulke on my head, but it's not only an external thing. I live my life like that. I said, with me, here's the thing you're going to get. Before you get any product and price, you're going to get implicit trust. You're going to get honesty. You're going to get integrity. And by the way, I don't work on Saturday. If you need something for a Saturday, you have to deal with me Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I stuck out my hand and I said, thank you so much. Have a great day and all the best. And I literally turned around and I started to walk, down, walk out right down the corridor. I get to the end and he has to buzz you out, right? Uh-huh. I get to the end, I put my hand on the, and they can see me in the camera. <laughs> As I'm standing there, and I hear, I literally hear, just like that. I hear him like whistle. And I turn around and right down at the end of the corridor, there's Ted Young and he's like this. Motioning with his finger. I walk back down and he takes me into his office. And I come in there. 
And I was absolutely flabbergasted as to what my eyes were seeing. I could not believe what I was seeing. His entire office was laden with Nazi memorabilia. All sorts of flags, all sorts of... I mean, I've never seen so many swastikas in my life. Guns, literature, pieces of art. I'm not talking about a piece or two. I'm talking about an entire library of this stuff. I'm looking at this. He doesn't say a word. He just motions me to come over. Come over to this huge mahogany cupboard, massive. He puts on a pair of white gloves. He leans in, he opens it up. And in there, I see there's a helmet with a bullet hole on it, with a Nazi, with a, a swastika. There's four, five, six different weapons. There's a sword with a tassel and a, a swastika logo on it, written right across the blade of the sword, Eichmann, etched into the blade. He pulls out this Luger. A Luger was a famous 9mm weapon that the Nazis favoured. He pulls it out. It's clear there's no magazine in it, and it's beautifully chromed with a huge swastika etched into both sides of it. And he holds it in his hand and he says, this was Hitler's sidearm. Now I'm looking at him, I'm looking around, you know, I will take him out and dismantle him in ways he doesn't know yet. I will put him on the floor flat, they'll need an ambulance to pick him up. I have no idea what's going on over here. I don't know if this guy's a, is he a skinhead? Is he a Nazi sympathizer? Is he an anti-Semite of night? What's his story? Puts it back in. He pulls out a flag, a folded flag that was, it was sewn in. There was a signature sewn in in a gold thread on the right-hand corner. It said Rudolf Hess. I'm looking at this. I'm like, buddy, what is the story here? He closes this up. He puts the gloves down. He says, come have a seat. He says, look, my father told myself and my two brothers to collect Nazi memorabilia all over the world and to keep it right here in this secured environment. Take it off the market so that people will not trade from it and make a profit. That's our small way, he said, of our contribution to the heinous tragedy that took place with the Nazis and the Germans. I said, Ted, you've got to be kidding me. I said, how much of the stuff is there? He told me that Lloyds of London were there in 1996. And at that time, they valued the collection at about $4 million. This is 1996. Wow. Unbelievable. Keeps it off the market. This is before eBay and right. trading platforms in which you could you know, sell the thing for millions. I said, so it just sits here and does nothing? He said, yeah, it sits here, does nothing, off the market, unavailable for people to profit on. I said, that's incredible. I thank you personally, and I thank you on the part of my people. And then he said to me these four beautiful words, Kivi, now tell me. And we discussed business. I told him what my story was. He said, come back with a couple of things. Let's look. I might have some clients. We landed up doing business for years, millions and millions of dollars of business. Wow. So that happened because on one occasion, instead of bringing product 
to the table and competing at price and product and all other mechanisms of competition, delivery, packaging, etc. I left all of that at home. And I took one thing with me, myself, who I am. Not what I do, but who I am. I took it with me, like a leopard. And that's what he bought. It's a fascinating story. The story I have in mind, I don't remember the story at all. All I have is an image of you coming out of an elevator with a yarmulke or something. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Different story. That's all I remember is the elevator. But uh, That's Mark Rich and Company. They headhunted me. When I first started my working career after school, I, was, I worked in a raw materials trading operation in South Africa. And I traded raw materials. And I got headhunted by Mark Rich and Company, literally about a year after I was there. And they invited me to London to interview for a position trading oil, to go to Switzerland and trade oil. So you sell your soul, but, you know, you can make a very significant amount of money. You have no life. You're unlikely to be married at the end of two years, but you're, you know, you're, you're successful, right? But I was 23 years old. And um, I traveled to London. They interviewed me for like four days. It was grueling, absolutely grueling beyond. And uh, literally at the end, these two guys were seeing me off to the elevator. And uh, <laughs> as I walked in, they said, we looked very forward to being in touch. I would go home, tell your wife to start packing. It's literally what they said. And as the elevator doors were closing, the one guy sticks his hand in and he says, Kevin, just one more thing. He says, listen, everyone knows that Mark Rich & Co. is a Jewish company owned by Jews. In all 28 offices worldwide, we don't wear yarmulke. He said, we don't wear a keppel. A keppel is how they say yarmulke in, in Europe. He says, because we don't like to throw it down people's throats. And he said, I hope that's not a problem. I stuck my hand in the elevator, and I, by the way, I was, I was 23, 24 years old at the time. Okay, I stuck my hand in the elevator. I said, well, gentlemen, that's a problem because I'm a South African, and we did not grow up with this culture. My is on my head, and you're going to need an army to remove it. I said, everything is negotiable, but not my yarmulke. And the guy held the elevator door, and he said to me, well, everything is negotiable on our side, except for the yarmulke. Only a Jew can say that, right? <laughs> yes. You, now you remember the story? No, I, I don't remember the ending at all. I just have that elevator scene in my head. It's all I remember. Yeah, that's what happened. And that was it. Got in the cab, went to Heathrow Airport. Never heard from him. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you got hired in heaven, even if you didn't get hired by the company. But Exactly right. <laughs> okay, so uh, you wrote an email to me last month. And in that email, you argued that 10-7 has served as something of a wake-up call. You wrote that too many from Jews before this date have been focusing on wealth and ostentatiousness rather than on our godly mission. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't recall using those exact words, but... I, I was paraphrasing, but yes, more or less. Well, you know, absolutely. I mean, basically, the bottom line is that, listen, this is no secret, right? And this is an important discussion uh, that really needs to be had at length. And it needs to be had in an intellectually intelligent and honest way. Around kitchen tables, around dining rooms, around shoppers tables. And most of all, actually, it's a conversation that needs to happen in people's own internal headspace. Um, 
we from Jews have lived in an extraordinarily, in this last decade, an era, post-Europe, have lived an extraordinarily abundant life. And it's one of the challenges, right, of spiritual pursuit, because it's difficult to develop a total reliance on Hashem, which is what we need to do. That's what Bitochen is. Bitochen is not trust in God. Bitochen is absolute reliance, as the, the Svarim say, She'en Zulas Acher, that there is no other thing that on which I rely. It's very difficult to do that when you've got five and ten and a hundred million dollars sitting in a bank account and you're fifth and sixth and seventh generation American, you're living in Lakewood and you're four generations from great-great-granddad who, you know, worked in a fruit shop, bought the fruit shop, bought the building, owns half of Manhattan, and you're now in cash advance in MCA and running 17 Amazon businesses because you've leveraged, right? Driving a $75,000 luxury car, you and your wife, you know, etc. It, it's It's just, it's very difficult to kind of really develop these sensitivities. By the way, this is a very, very difficult discussion to have because you have to balance it. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, a luxury watch, which I happen to love. There's nothing wrong with that. There's something wrong with 35 of them. There's something wrong with putting your seven-year-old kid on a private jet to go down to the Bahamas for the weekend for Shabbos and the, the private chef that you're bringing along for $25,000 to make Shabbos for you and six friends, there's a problem with that. Conceptual problem, not a transactional problem. You have the money, you can afford it. Absolutely. There's a certain loss of sensitivity to the spirituality of money, of consumption, of are we serving it or is it serving us? That gets lost in the equation. And that becomes very detrimental, becomes toxic to spiritual consciousness, what I like to call divine consciousness. And this is something that we have suffered for tremendously. And it's, by the way, it's been the big 800-pound gorilla, the pink elephant in the room that no one wants to speak about. The Rosh Hashiva just, you know, as long as there's money coming into the yeshiva, we're good to go. We don't look under the sheets too much because kesef nanetako, guilt, money. So, this has become a very tricky space. And that's why this discussion really needs to happen in a quiet. Yourself, your wife, your friends. You don't want to be punitive. It doesn't mean you cannot enjoy and engage life. It's really about just developing this sensitivity and really understanding. Is this the dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog over here? And what has become of this consumption and this incredible wealth that we're living in? The reason October 7th had such a significant impact, I believe, on this equation and that it will, and this is in my mind, one of the key things that Hashem was really looking to dial out. We don't need Hashem so much. We just don't need Him. We're financially independent. We're socially independent. We're organizationally independent. There are tzedakah organizations very sophisticated. I mean, they're bigger chaylim organizations that take care of patients that don't have money for this, that, the other, for Shabbos. Everything is self-sustained in the Jewish community. It's incredible. It's one of the reasons, by the way, they hate us so much. We are fabulously self-sufficient and organized at a level of efficiency that is above and beyond 
what the Gentiles of the world could even fathom to put together. The problem with it is, it squeezes God out of the equation. October 7th, here's what happened. Several of our checkboxes that we had organized, that we absolutely had structured, funded, organized, were dependent on, collapsed. The IDF totally, absolutely collapsed on October 7th. The Mossad totally and absolutely collapsed on October 7th. The Shin Bet totally and absolutely collapsed on October 7th. This social ideology that Israel has been working for 75 years, but particularly the last 25 years, of this Kumbaya, no problem, West Bank, PA authority, we've got the thing sorted out. We know these people. We know how to deal with them. We're talking to them. Love the Arabs. Love the Palestinians. It's no problem. We're going to work with them. We have Hamas under control. Bring them in to work for you. En masse, no problem. Get things happening for the Palestinians. It's all going to work to our favor. Collapsed. This is the ideology that I've been operating under. Collapsed. Hang on a second. It's no joke. Mayor Kahana was right. I ridiculed him. I absolutely downed him. I said he's a he's a right-wing nutcracker. Turns out they've been not correct, but absolutely and precisely correct, literally to the letter. It's a massive, massive collapse moment. And so all these things that I relied on, these mechanisms, got out of the equation. There's only one place for that. And by the way, many of these things will not be sorted out for years. No one wants to have the discussion right now. We have our brothers and sisters in the, in the line of fire. This is not a time to explore the colossal failure of intelligence that took place. You and I know that there are only three possibilities for that. Hamas, left or right, but someone infiltrated all of those organizations and did so at a grand scale. Those are the only three possibilities for that. The, the idea that one single lone officer just ignored information, not happening. It doesn't work. In that space where that event was taking place, a musical event, you throw a ping pong ball up there, two feet in the ground, 16 people are seeing that instantaneously on a camera and picking that up. You tell me 12 guys are flying in in microlights and you don't see that? I'm just saying to you, you understand that Hashem on October 7th peeled back every single fundamental element of reliance that we had constructed inside of Claudius Rome. Financial, social, organizational, security, defense, military, out, collapsed. And the lesson we're supposed to take from that? And the lesson is, There is nothing else. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, my children, says Hashem, on October 7th, I love you deeply. I'm resetting the world. I began this process with COVID to let you understand that even something you can't see, smell, touch, can collapse an entire world in a space, by the way, that you're dominant in, science, biology, medicine, mathematics, it will turn you upside down, the most sophisticated generation on earth, in a way that 
absolutely no man has control of. It'll generate corruption beyond. It'll generate collapse of governments, of institutions, of organizations, and you will not have a grip on it. Please understand that I'm using this so that you get that I am the king of the universe and you work with me, not them, not it. Be busy with it, but rely on me. Don't tell me you have things under control. You don't. I'm the one that establishes whether things are under control or whether they're not. Right. Do we work with it? No. We go out there, we make a tremendous amount of money with PPP, with PPE, God knows what. We go out there, we leverage. We, it happens to be some of our best financial years ever, post-COVID. We use the system, this, that, the other. We're flying up and down in private jets. Money's flowing. Property guys are, are just absolutely singing. Hashem says, I'm speaking to you people. You're not listening. You're not hearing me. I'm going to play with your interest rate, so it's going to knock you down a little bit, okay? You still don't get what I'm sharing with you here. It's a little tough. Things tighten up. No. Boom. October 7th. Out. I'm wondering what the practical ramifications are. Are you just talking about like a mindset? Because practically speaking, God does want us to work within the world. We're supposed to make a living. We're supposed to, if you know, if you have a country, you're supposed to use an army, an intelligence service. So is, are you talking more about, about a mindset or are you talking about something else so practical in terms of our, our actions? Talking very practically. I'm talking very, very practically. You built a business. That's what you rely on. You have money in your bank account. That's what you rely on. You have a beautiful home in Monsi. That's what you rely on. You have a beautiful car that's going to drive you up and down to work. That's what you're relying on. So what should we be doing instead? You need to redial your reliance. I want you to be busy with the car. I want you to be busy with the house. I want you to be busy with the business, with bankers, with board meetings, with transactions, with engagements. Because you live in a physical, material world. You live in a physical, material world where I put you. I built it. I need you to see me in it and to rely on me in that world, not on it. I want you to be busy with all of these things you're busy with. Innovation, technology, science, biology, math. The development and the evolution of society to the best of its capacity. I want you to be busy with all of these things because you're a physical, corporal human being that lives in the world. I don't want you relying on any of them. I want you relying on me. So it's more mental. It's not mental, it's practical. This is the entire work of of Bittachan. This is all it is. I want you to to be busy with it I don't want you to rely on it. Go get a degree, please, in in accounting. Become a forensic accountant from Torah. Bigdusha Batara, kosher. Go be the best forensic accountant you can be. Do not rely on it. Rely on me. It doesn't make you a living. I make you a living. Right. I want you to say that. I want you to think it. I want you to operate within it. I don't want you worrying that they're not going to renew your contract next year and driving yourself absolutely crazy, having no shalom bias. I want you busy with me. Rely on me. Hashem, I've got a problem. I heard at the office there's a possibility they may not be renewing my contract in 2024. You know, Hashem, that I have a family to support. I have tuition to pay. I'm acknowledging that you are the one that does this and I'm leaving it in your hands. You are the only one that can do this for me. I know that you're working for me. I know that you're busy for me. 
Hashem, you are the one that can do this, and I'm relying on you. I'm going to do my Yishtadlis. I'm going to a meeting on, th on Tuesday morning at 10.30. I'm going to present myself and present my case. I'm not relying on that. I'm relying on you. It will absolutely redial the whole mindset. And this is what we don't get. We have put Hashem in a silo. I've got God and my relationship with God and the fact that He is the omniscient, omnipotent God of all of the world. And then I've got my silo where I need to take care of business and do what I have to do. This is what Hashem needs to correct because we're coming into messianic times. And until this component is worked out, the reason for this you say three times a day at the end of Aleinu, you cannot have a messianic era until what comes out of my mouth and what is deep in my heart are one and the same thing. On that day, the notion, the conceptual ideology of an omniscient, omnipotent God and actually what literally is coming out of my mouth and my heart will be one and the same. And we're not there. We give lip service to God, and we've done that for decades and generations. It's not cutting it. And October 7th was a massive, massive wake-up call to that. The things that you've built, that you rely on, that you say you have management and control of, you do not. You think you do, but you don't. In your email to me, you also argued that from businessmen have a new role to play in the world in the aftermath of 10-7. What exactly is that role? Is that what you were just talking about or you had something else in mind? That's exactly, parlays exactly into that. Orthodox, observant Jews that are high profile, not by virtue of their bank account or business, that they're wearing a yarmulke on their head, have tzitzis out, eat kosher, conduct themselves, don't work on Shabbat and Yom Tov, and are out there in the world as whether you look that way from the outside or whether you don't. There are, by the way, many Orthodox Jews that don't wear a yarmulke at work for one reason or another. Everyone knows you're a Jew. Everyone knows you're an Orthodox Jew. The only, you know, my father once said, the only thing you're hiding your Jewishness from is your own set of eyes. No one else does not know who and what you are. You're a Jew. You walk in the world as a Jew. You operate at an entirely different level. You connect dots that other people don't. You see value where other people don't. You are articulate and you, you're a critical thinker. You're an analyst in a way that other people are not. Everyone knows this about the Jews. This is anti-Semitism 101. You're a Jew. Whether you look like a Jew, you don't know a Jew. What I'm sharing is that post-October 7th, we have a massive, massive responsibility and opportunity. We have to be the ones now to come to the world with refinement that maybe we weren't so careful about prior on October 6th, with honesty and integrity that maybe we weren't so careful with prior on October 6th, with a sense of regality, a sense of nationhood, a sense of I represent a moral compass in the world. I live for something transcendent. I live for a higher purpose. I have to speak both in vocabulary and in, be careful with Neville Pair in and around co-workers, people, because I am a Jew. And I now have this tremendous opportunity to sort of redefine for the world 
what the Jew actually looks like, what the Jew actually is. Not have the media narrative that's out there now dictate and define the Jew. I'm going to show you what the Jew is. So that I have a business partner who's Jewish. I have a, I have a boss who's Jewish. I have a company owner who's Jewish. That's not how he behaves. It's, that isn't accurate, etc. And this is why it's a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous opportunity that we have. Okay, we've spoken for a while, but I don't want to let you go before you repeat the story, which, again, is from my high school days, but I guess it made an impression. It was advice that your judo coach gave you about how to slam your opponent to the ground during a judo match. So last question, what was that piece of advice, and how does that apply to situations outside of judo? Right. There was just a very key piece of information that I received from a sensei of mine. I competed for Maccabi, and he brought in a guy actually from Israel, very high-ranking sensei, to train me and five other people that were members of this Maccabi team. This goes back to like, I don't know, 83 or 4. Anyway, this guy in a very broken English, he said we were training one day. It was like 7, 8, 8 o'clock at night. And it says, Zempo Kimi is a certain move where you pick someone up and throw them over your shoulder, right? It's a very fundamental move in judo because it derails someone. It gets them off their feet. You pick them up, you then drop them and sort of drop roll them. And you land them on the mat. And this guy, in the middle of this training, he stops. He calls everyone to stand up and stand in a circle. And he comes to us and he says to us, no, no. Your destination is not the mat. That's not where you want to put your opponent, not on the mat. You want to put them 10 feet under the mat. That's your destination. You don't shoot for here, you shoot for there. And you get there, that's a minimum entry. But it was just a headspace that he gave me about our personal sort of capacity. You know, there's a half measure and then there's a full measure. And then there's something beyond the full measure. And that's a space that you really kind of want to... It's actually interesting, by the way, Hanukkah has this message sung into it. In the deep Kabbalistic sources, they speak about Shemin, which is from the language of Shmona, eight. It's beyond the natural order. The seven is the, are the parameters. That's where the mat lives. But then there's Shmona, which is 10 feet under in a different dimension that you kind of want to get to and light that you have access to as a Jew. Seven being the week and eight being, I guess, beyond the natural order of the week. I think also seven musical notes, I think, or something like that. So I seven guess the eight. Notes, or... Seven you know, aspects of light in the prism refraction element. By the way, it says online you're a judo medalist. That means, I guess, you didn't I guess, win the whole championship. Or what does medalist mean in that particular case? Oh, I, I, <laughs> over the course of my years, I took two golds, I took two silvers, and I a third place in a national somewhere in South Africa. Oh, that's nice. So these are all South African competitions you were in? or And Maccabi. Maccabi. Okay, very nice. Maccabi games, yeah. All right. Well, it was a real pleasure and honor having you on. My absolute pleasure. Wish you the best of success. Thank and, you. Uh, yes. and all the best to you, Elliot, and the good work that you do. May be blessed to continue to do so for many years. All right. That does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. 